Mark Abbott figured he'd better take the back roads to get home in the early morning hours of November 8, 1992. Mark would later claim that he was drunk again and didn't want to get another DUI or get cited for driving without a license. When he pulled off of Interstate 55 near Benton, Missouri, he saw a car idling at the top of an exit ramp. He looked in and realized he'd found a body. Welcome to another episode of The Unlovely Truth. I'm your host, private investigator Lori Morrison. Join me for another captivating true crime story where physical, spiritual, and emotional safety takeaways are waiting for us. If you're listening right now, I believe you have a unique calling to become a different kind of PI. Not a typical private investigator like me, but a person of impact. This is season four, episode 45. Our book for this week is The Murder of Angela Michelle Lawless, An Honest Sheriff and the Exoneration of an Innocent Man by Stephen R. Snodgrass with Joshua C. Kieser. And our guest is Josh Kieser. So excited to have him. We'll check in with him after we investigate a little bit about this fascinating book. The body Mark Abbott saw in that car was 19-year-old nursing student Angela Michelle Lawless. With all the wisdom of a drunk man, he decided somebody else would come by soon. And if the police came looking for him, he'd just tell them that he was Matt Abbott, his twin brother. If true crime shows had been popular back then, maybe he'd have known that twins don't have identical fingerprints. Someone else did drive by and notice the car. But they didn't stop in case whoever was inside might be looking for trouble. That couple went to the sheriff's department to tell them that that scene needed to be checked out. A reserve sheriff deputy and another officer found Angela, who went by her middle name of Michelle. She was lying across the center console with her head on the passenger seat. Michelle did not appear to be breathing. One of the Abbott twins showed up at the sheriff's office claiming that he'd found a body and that she'd been shot. Now, whether this was actually Matt or Mark wasn't as important as the information he gave. Police questioned both of the Abbots. They questioned Michelle's friends and ex-boyfriends. Samples from under Michelle's fingernails were sent to the FBI lab. And of course, back then, DNA testing wasn't what it is now. Those samples could only be used to eliminate suspects. Michelle's case went cold quickly. Every potential suspect could be eliminated by the evidence or by the fact that they had a rock-solid alibi. Everyone except Mark Abbott. But the authorities got distracted from looking more closely at Abbott when prisoners in the Cape Girardeau County Jail came forward with stories about this guy that they said had confessed to murdering Michelle. Police, of course, were ecstatic. They didn't stop to consider that these prisoners might have just gotten together to make a plan to implicate someone else in Michelle's murder so that they could get deals to reduce the charges that they were facing. Who knows why they picked Josh? Later, one would say they figured that Josh would be able to prove his innocence after they had their deals in place. It didn't work out that way. Family trouble, school trouble, and minor trouble with the law was already dogging Josh by the age of 17. He was working to turn his life around when he was arrested for Michelle's murder. Now, those guys that said that Josh had confessed to them they took it back, but other prisoners were stepping up to the plate to say that Josh had confessed to them. Despite the fact that he had an alibi witness that placed him over 300 miles away at the time of Michelle's murder, Josh was convicted and sent to prison. Believe me, prison is a rough and dangerous place, and Josh had to learn how to survive there. As time passed, he got involved with the prison ministry and started attending Sunday services and even joined some Bible study groups. Josh says in the book that faith became the focus and the center of his life. It gave him hope for the future and helped him handle the nightmare that was his present. 
It was there in prison that he met Jane Williams. Jane was at the prison giving a presentation on devotionals that she had written. After meeting, they forged a friendship through correspondence. And eventually, Josh trusted Jane enough to tell her his story. Scott County Reserve Deputy Rick Walter was elected sheriff after Josh had been in prison for over a decade. Walter was the first deputy who had arrived at the scene of Michelle's murder, and he had always believed that the case against Josh was weak. Though neither he nor Jane Williams knew what the other one was doing, their combined efforts would change Josh's life forever. It took time, and it wasn't easy, and he still lives with the trauma that he endured spending so many years in prison for a crime he didn't commit. One of the most important things that he learned was the importance of forgiveness. Let's check in with him now and hear more about that. Josh, I want to thank you so much for joining us because you do have an extremely unique story. And what we always try to do here on The Unlovely Truth is give people takeaways. And your story's got so many. I don't know that we'll get to all of them. But people tend to think to help either victims of crime or victims of some sort of injustice, they have to have some sort of special training, some sort of special job. But you and I know that that's just not true. So I want you to tell me, having been through what you've been through, what have you learned that people can really step up and do no matter what walk of life they're in? My mentor, James Jackson, an old army man that I met when he was a volunteer in the Missouri Department of Corrections, whenever he would visit the prison and I would ask him, you know, what is something else I can work on to become a better Christian or to become a better man? And he would repeatedly say, observe. It was the same answer every week for years. And it was, I guess, maddening, but it was the greatest advice I can be given. It made me take time to pay attention. It would cause me to see the wealth and merely paying attention, the riches in that and what you can gain from that. There's a song, Give Me Your Eyes, so that I can see everything that I've been missing. That's wonderful advice. Hear that when you're thinking physical safety, you know, situational awareness, pay attention to what's going on around you. But I think that's true when we're just talking to people and hearing their story and listening to the emotions behind it and, and hearing what they're telling us. Yeah. I remember this book that I read when I was a kid and it was about this man who had this gift and he woke up one day and he can hear everything going on in the world. And every conversation he had with people, the visual that he would see with his physical eyes was someone getting extremely angry or volatile. But then he had this spiritual gift to be able to see this same person broken and lonely, crying, isolated, and just wanting to be heard. I've come to believe that Pastor James Jackson's advice to me to observe and to learn, it, it puts you in a position to care, to empathize with the people and the world that you interact with. And if we just paid a little bit of attention, and I would say that having the willingness to mind someone else's business. Oh, I like the way you phrase that. To, to get involved, even if it causes you discomfort. Are we willing to invite interruptions of empathy into our life to where other people's uncomfortable realities invade us? Are we willing to allow that? And to what degree are we willing to allow that? And I know that that's dangerous and I know that that's uncomfortable and I know that that's invasive to really make a difference in the world. You have to be willing to open the door of your life occasionally and you have to be willing to invite discomfort. And the understanding that doing the right thing doesn't always feel like the right thing. That is so true. I could not agree with you more on that. 
And I want to read to you a quote that you have from the book. So this is, this is you talking, and it just really struck me. In the Christian faith, one of the big things we're taught is forgiveness. And you said, talking about forgiveness is easy. Actually, forgiving is not. So tell me a little bit more about, especially given what you've been through, what does that look like for you on a day-to-day basis? I want to recommend that um, people read The Murder of Angela Michelle Lawless by Stephen Snodgrass with myself so that they can um, read the examples, um, the real world visceral examples that I give and how I've walked out forgiveness in my life or some of the instances that I've walked it out specifically with some of the people responsible for my wrongful conviction. And I, I think that that, it, that would open up a, a broader understanding for people why that quote's so significant and why you want to bring that up. I really, I've wrestled with this over time. I've heard preachers behind pulpits that I believe are inexperienced with forgiveness say that forgiveness is a one-time thing, that if you, if you truly forgive, then it should only require one time, giving it completely to God, and then you move on. And I, I feel that that's beyond naivete. I feel that that's, that's beyond ignorance. That's just foolish. It denies human complexity. It really denies the trauma often of what you're forgiving. And it denies the individuality of that walking out of forgiveness that God has with each of us. But I do believe that there's a roadmap and there are instructions that God gives us throughout the word. And that the more that we follow that map and the more we follow those instructions and we walk that forgiveness out, he shows us a little bit more and a little bit more, a little bit more. And he helps us give a little bit more to him of that wound every day. And the forgiveness becomes more and more whole and more and more complete. And I think that there are things that, unfortunately, that we can do that can set us back. But there are things that we can do that can move us forward. The most important of those things that can set us back is dishonesty. And the most important of those things that can move us forward is honesty. When I have taken my rage and my anger to God for what was done to me, in prayer, in a dark, damp prison cell I was in at the time, I had to be completely honest. It, it wasn't, God, hey man, if you haven't noticed, these people have done something really bad to me, right? I think I'm going to let it go, man, because you know, Jesus let it go on the cross. And I think I'm, I, I think I'm vibing with that, Father. I think that's what I'm going to do, right? I think me and you, we got this, we got this understanding, right? That I'm not really a killer, so I'm going to let it go. No, it wasn't like that. <laughs> in any regard, I got very real with the Lord in prison. I took all of my rage to him. When what these men did, they denied my my parents of grandchildren. My father couldn't come and see me for years because it, it crushed him to see his son in prison. My mother used to come and visit me. And then when she left, she'd have to pull over on the side of the highway and cry. She attempted suicide on more than one occasion. At one point in time, she drank Drano. Think about how depressed you got to be to look at a bottle of Drano and think that's a good idea, right? And what they had done to my family, my mom and my dad, even more so than me. And quite honestly, I'm not saying this sound altruistic or like I'm beyond my own emotions and feeling my own emotions. But what they did to Michelle Lawless, even though I never knew her, that always wounded me. Because um, if you have a compassionate heart, once you learn what they did to her, it's still difficult for me to think of. It was extremely violent when I went in prison and there was no cameras. It was a different era. It was 24-7 war. And trying to get through there and maintain some type of humanity. And even on your best days, you notice that you're changing. 
that parts of you are dying on the inside as, as hard as you fight against it because you can't care as much. If you want to make it through prison, you can't care about everything. You can't fight every battle. Like we, we talked about earlier, like the Lord opened my eyes so I can see you. No. And there sometimes, no, God, I, I don't want to see today. I, I, I want to eat my breakfast. I don't want to see the guy getting stabbed behind me. I've been out since 2019. I still haven't been out as long as I was in. So when they asked that question, and I'm like, do you understand what I had to give up? The rage. But I think as believers, we need to open our eyes. Like you're saying, we need to see what people are going through if we're to be of any practical help at all. And so that's why I started this podcast. You know, people say, well, true crime and faith, that's a really different kind of combination. But I feel as people of faith, we should be leading the way to help people of of any kind of injustice. Well, that too, ma'am. And I feel like that if you're not honest with the things that you had to lay at the foot of the cross, how can you help others who have been through, I don't know if equally is the right word or other horrific instances or situations or circumstances or victimizations, how can you be there for them and offer them the same hope that you've been offered with the gospel of Christ. The book goes into the benefits. I ran across people that were responsible for putting me in prison. Now, what would have happened had I not been that brutally honest on my knees? Yes. So we can say, well, is it necessary to say that to God? Is it necessary to go through those steps? You know, God knows, God already knows, you know, I really don't need to say these things. That's a bit ugly, Josh. That's a bit too much. You know, maybe, maybe it is ugly and maybe it is to some degree unnecessary, but I will say to other degrees, it's completely necessary because it's in that place that you're surrendering, that you're giving over and you're saying, Lord, I don't understand everything that's going on here. Quite frankly, I don't know if Satan's behind this, if you're behind this, if wicked and evil men are behind this. I I don't have a big enough understanding of the cosmos or of your nature and character, God, to know all the answers behind this. But I do know, and I see displayed in your word, that when a person hands their rage and their anger and their sense of self even over to you, then you can remake that sense of self. You can take that anger and you can redeem it and you can turn it into something useful that blesses not only the world around you, but your enemies and the very people that want to destroy you. You can potentially be used in a way to bless them and restore them to a a saving relationship with Christ. And if you can't do that, then maybe you can give other people hope, right? Mm -hmm. So... I honestly feel, ma'am, that if I didn't go through those honest steps of forgiveness, then I'm not in a position today to be the co-author of the book, The Murder of Michelle Lawless, Angela Michelle Lawless. I'm not in a position to sit in this podcast. I'm not in a position to have been featured twice now on the 700 Club or or anywhere. I'm I'm definitely not in, in a position to be one of the few advocates for the Michelle Lawless family now. I'm I'm in a position to to be of use to no one. Because quite honestly, had I never forgiven, even if I would have been exonerated, I'd probably already be back in prison for exacting some form of rage on the people that victimized my mother, victimized my father, and put three bullets 
and Michelle Lawless and victimized her parents and her brother and her sister. And I can just keep going. And that's the thing about, you know, Satan and hell and rage and unforgiveness. They're never satiated. They always want more. There's always something else to draw off of. So if you're not willing to give it completely over to Christ, they will find a way in and they will manipulate you and they'll hurt you and they'll hurt others. And I didn't want to be used like that. That brings up a point that I talk a lot about on the podcast, the ripple effect of crime. You know, you obviously were the central victim in your story. Michelle was the central victim in her story. But you've also got, as you mentioned, your mother, your father, Michelle's family, the community at large, not knowing what was going on, not knowing who they could trust. I think that's another avenue. Uh, may, May I add as well, other people that I believe and others believe that the killers have victimized. Well, yes, because you were serving their time. So they were free to, as you say, victimize others. That's an excellent point. And I think that it also shows that we have such a wider field of people that we can help. And again, that goes back to your original point, if we're paying attention. So if someone had, had been paying attention to all the pain that your mother was in and had been able to minister to her. We live in a very simplistic world that we we like to believe that we're willing to see with that scope, but we're not. Because I was as innocent the day I was arrested and charged as I am today. My story was as important the day I was arraigned, the day I was charged, the day I was convicted, the day I was sent to prison. I was just as innocent then as the day that I was that I walked out of prison and had boom mics and cameras surrounding me. And the reality is, is the, the world caught up to where I had already been. What I want to encourage people to do is to not, you know, if we really want to change things, one of the things we can do, when I say pay attention, don't just pay attention to the stories that are available. Pay attention to the stories that aren't. Pay attention to the ones where people aren't talking about it. You know, I, I, I advocated for a man named Doc Nash for years. It took me about eight years to help get him out of prison. Doc was as innocent the day I started advocating for him as he was the day he walked out of prison exonerated. The bottom line is, until we're willing as a country and as a culture and as a people to start wrapping our heads around that truth, our legislatures aren't, they're they're not going to change the laws. They're not going to change the guidelines. They're not going to put more accountability, more responsibility on judges and prosecutors. There needs to be some things that are seriously evaluated and changed. I, for one, think that the jury system in this country needs to be evaluated and adjusted. I don't know about completely changed, but at least needs to be adjusted. I think cops already have what's called qualified immunity. I know there's a big movement to do away with that. I disagree with that. Qualified immunity is extremely hard to breach. But what I do think needs to be dismissed is absolute immunity for prosecutors. Look, prosecutors, it's already hard enough to breach qualified immunity. Why do you need absolute immunity if you're not up to anything crooked, anything wrong? We've had enough injustice in this world that I think proves that the very least, the very least, as a culture and as a nation, we we should be willing to at least test drive qualified immunity on prosecutors for about 10 or 15 years to see how this works out. Because we just need to make, make some changes. And remember that you know, yeah, I'm on here advocating um, 
for right now, currently for innocent men and falsely accused men and falsely accused women and children. And so I, I don't want people to think that I'm just on here talking about men. But I'm, I'm, I'm first and foremost advocating on behalf of victims because that's what we are. I'm, I'm here to advocate on behalf of victims of crime that include Judy Spencer, um, the victim that Doc Nash was wrongly accused of killing, that include Angela Michelle Lawless, and that include Joshua Kieser and Doc Nash, because we're all victims of these things. And the people that aren't being properly held accountable are the actual killers, the actual rapists, the actual child molesters, the actual people that are responsible for inflicting pain and violence on people. And, and the people that aren't being held accountable are the people that aren't really practicing ethics and integrity whenever they investigate these crimes as sheriffs, as deputies, as prosecutors, as investigators, as, as highway patrolmen, as AG prosecutors and representatives, as, as elected officials. We need to find ways to adequately hold them accountable as well. Instead of just, you know, having these protective shields around them that enable them to make decisions whenever they want to, however they want to, with no real cost to them. Well, and for anybody who thinks we're talking about honest mistakes that got out of hand, you need to get a copy of the book. There's a link in the show notes. So make sure you read the story because it's so nuanced and so many things happened. We don't have time to talk about all of them today. I really, really do suggest that you get this book, read this book, especially now that you've heard from Josh himself, you've got some perspective on things. And I know that that you speak about your experience. And like you said, you advocate on behalf of other people, other victims. So if someone wanted to get in touch with you and talk to you about that, what's the best way for them to do that? I appreciate you asking that because quite honestly, I do invite people to get in touch with me. Unfortunately, the most of the time when people get in touch with me, there's really nothing I can do. But there are other times and, and I appreciate these times. And these times are like gold where people reach out to me and I can have a conversation with them. And sometimes I can give them helpful advice to help them move forward and how to fight whatever injustice they're going through. Or sometimes I can connect them with someone who can help them further or I can perhaps offer them some insight and some wisdom from my experience or encouragement in my faith. You know, people often want to ask me about forgiveness and how it is I was able to forgive um, people for what they for what they've done. And, you know, I need people to understand that, you know, I the knowledge and what I have to give to people, it's not welcome knowledge. I've gained this over a lifetime of trauma. But what is welcomed is the interaction with people who may want it or, or need what I have to give. And, you know, people can they can reach me. I'm available on Instagram at Josh underscore Keezer. I'm available on Twitter at Josh Keezer. It's J-O-S-H-K-E-Z-E-R. I'm available on Facebook. I have a personal page there and a fan page, I guess is what you would call it. I don't know. But the people can reach me on, on any of these platforms. And I want them to know that if they do reach out to me about helping with someone who's um, in prison for something they didn't do, then I need them to, to be ready to answer at least two questions. And one of them is going to sound a little bit cold, but it's not. It's what is the prosecution's case against you? Because if you're already convicted, we have to work backwards at that point. You no longer get the presumption of innocence. Right. The presumption of innocence is something that needs to be addressed in this country. We really didn't go into that in this interview didn't go that direction. However, I think you agree that the presumption of innocence 
is a foundational element of the rights of Americans in this country, and, and quite frankly, the rights of human beings in this country, not just Americans. But when you're convicted, post-conviction, you had the presumption of guilt. Mm -hmm. Because like it or not, system broken or not, the system gets it right more often than not. So based on that, we have to work backwards. So when people contact me, I need them to work backwards with me. What's the prosecution's case? Not what's the defense? They didn't do it. I loved them. They would never do this. Well, last time I checked, most of the people in prison started out football coaches, teachers, husbands, wives. They didn't start out somebody that would do something really heinous. So we have to work backwards. And then the other question that people need to ask, and this is the one that sounds a little bit heartless, but it's not because the reality is we don't have, the lawyers I work with often don't have endless funds. And they may be wealthy men, but they don't have endless funds and they have families that they got to raise with the money they make as well. And that question is, why you? Yeah. What sets your case and story apart to where they essentially choose you and choose to invest millions of dollars into defending you over, say, a teenage boy or a teenage girl that's no longer a teenager, but they've been in prison for 20 or 30 years? Jane Williams, the woman that brought my case to the lawyers that helped me had to present the case of why Josh Kieser. That's incredible wisdom. And you've been so generous to share your story, which can't be an easy story to relive. But I know you do it from a heart of God will bring good out of anything, but we have to take action. You're taking that action to make sure that there is good that came out of a very bad situation that you were in. And I appreciate that so very much. And I would ask people also if you can help me with a little bit of action in the Michelle Lawless case. There is a, a new prosecutor that took office in 2023 in Scott County, Missouri, a man named Don Cobb. And he, along with the judge in Scott County, appointed a special prosecutor, a man named Alan Moss. He's a private attorney out of Cape Girardeau, Missouri, to um, represent special prosecution in the case. And Alan Moss, he brought on a special investigator named David James onto the case. And, you know, I have my feelings about some of the decisions that, that they're making. But my feelings aside, what I would ask people to do is to hold them accountable to communicate to them the importance of this case. This girl was shot in the face in November of 1992. Some of the authorities in this case can't be trusted. The Scott County Sheriff's Department in this case cannot be trusted. Uh, my book goes into why that is, the history of that, why I believe that the department is corrupt. I go into that in depth in the book. You know, if you don't mind me giving a plug, can I give a plug to go the right other ahead. podcast? Okay, so the podcast, The Lawless Files, hosted by Bob Miller, goes into great depth as well about why we don't believe you can trust the integrity of the Scott County Sheriff's Department. However, Prosecutor Don Cobb, he's been in office since 2023. Alan Moss, Special Prosecutor David James, Special Investigator. These are the authorities that you can contact through Scott County Prosecutor if necessary, Scott County Prosecutor Don Cobb's office. You can um, probably Google his number, find that, contact him specifically. I'll find it and I'll put it um, in the show notes. Thank you. Because whether or not I agree with some of the decisions they're making, they are the authorities 
that if we're going to trust and we need to communicate information to them, you can contact them. I do believe there's actually, you may be able to find this. I don't have it sitting in front of me right now. I do believe that they've actually put out a press release that offers a Facebook page, an email address, and a phone number that people can contact specifically with information about this case. If, on the other hand, because sometimes people don't trust law enforcement and, and people who may have information on this case won't trust any law enforcement or any prosecutor or any investigator in this case because over 30 years they've learned um, through their experience that they can't or they won't trust them, then please reach out to me or reach out to Bob Miller of The Lawless Files and we'll get that information to them. So, but please understand that if you bring information to us, it is no longer, there was a time where we're willing to take anonymous information with due respect. That time has passed. No longer interested in your anonymous information. No longer interested in your phone call that just drops in your email that has a different person's name on it. And you're not willing to reveal who you are because you're scared. Well, with all due respect, see, I, I show a lot of grace. And I show a lot of kindness and I show a lot of forgiveness when I'm talking about my story. But when I start talking about Michelle Lawless's story, this is a different animal. I am tired of cowardice. I am tired of hesitancy. I am tired of your anonymity. If you know something, come forward to the authorities, to myself, to Bob Miller. Let's find a way to help bring justice to a murdered 19-year-old girl who was shot in the face on the side of a highway and left for dead. Let's find a way to bring justice to this young lady who was a nursing student aspiring to be a nurse and to help other people. Let's do what we can to bring some semblance of comfort and closure and kindness, quite frankly, to the lawless family, that being Michelle's mother, Esther, her sister, Valerie, her brother, Jason, and her father, Marvin. They deserve, along with their cousins and their aunts and their uncles and their neighbors and their communities and the people they've known over the years that have walked this out with them, they all deserve this to be over with. It's time. You're right. And thank you. Thank you so much for advocating for them. And I appreciate all your time, all your wisdom today. This has been an incredible interview, and I just can't thank you enough. The Bible passage that I picked for this week is Psalm 109, verses 1 through 3. Be not silent, O God of my praise, for wicked and deceitful mouths are opened up against me, speaking against me with lying tongues. They encircle me with words of hate and attack me without cause. This is a Psalm of David, written when he was at a really low point in his life. Enemies were pursuing him with lies. Josh Keezer knows what that feels like. If you go back and read the rest of this psalm, you'll see that even in his distress, David left vengeance to God. That's not easy to do at all. David made the right decision when he cried out to God for help. And it certainly helped Josh that he turned to his faith when he was in prison because people had lied about him. What attacks are you facing where it's really tempting to try to get payback? I hope that Psalm 109 inspires you to let God deal with it. Just like Josh learned, forgiveness is tough, it's an ongoing thing, but when we can do that, we are so less tempted to take matters into our own hands and be able to actually do what David did here and lay his troubles at the feet of God and leave them there and let God do 
what God will do. Let me know what you think of this kind of radical forgiveness. Send me an email at laurie@theunlovelytruths.com, or you can message me on social media. You'll find me on Instagram at The Unlovely Truth Podcast or on Facebook at The Unlovely Truth. I love it when people are willing to have these hard but impactful conversations. The Unlovely Truth is written and produced by me, Lori Morrison. Music is by Neocortex, and the artwork is by Shelby Highland. See you all next time.